Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the director of the Global Symmetry Project. All the elements of the Global Symmetry Project can be found at globalsymmetryproject.com. There you will find uh, the e-journal, Global Symmetry. You will find um, uh, three different podcast series, which we hope you will enjoy. The Summit Dialogue series, the Shaking the Global Order series, and the Now series. And in addition, you will find also our new YouTube uh, channel, where we will uh, be conducting interviews with various guests concerned with, of course, uh, the global order. It's my pleasure today uh, to introduce and bring into the virtual studio Stuart Patrick. Uh, the discussion today of which Stuart is an uh, expert uh, are the many efforts that are underway uh, to tackle uh, the dramatic decline in biodiversity. Humans have already transformed more than 70% of the planet's ice-free uh, land surface, and it's primarily uh, our need, human need, uh, to, um, uh, for agriculture, food production, ranching, also mining, and then, of course, human settlement. Around 1 million animal and plant species are now threatened with extinction, many within decades, more than ever before. And I hope to talk to Stuart about these various initiatives and their effectiveness, the One Planet Summit, the current uh, COP15 in Kangming, which was postponed but will now meet in October, and within the Kunming um, initiative, the COP15, there is the so-called 30 by 30 initiative, as well as the continuing uh, discussions about a treaty for the high seas. So um, it's uh, been a, a real pleasure to be able to bring uh, into the virtual studio, uh, Stuart, to talk about uh, these particular uh, uh, summits. Stuart is the James uh, Binger Senior Fellow in Global Governance, and he's also the director of the International Institutions and Global Governance Program at the Council on Foreign Relations. Stuart is the author or co-author or editor of at least five books, and um, he's probably best known these days uh, for his uh, blog writing at The Internationalist. Uh, Stuart graduated from Stanford University, received two master's degrees, and his doctorate in international relations from Oxford University, where he was a Rhodes Scholar. Um, it's a real pleasure to bring into the studio to talk about this complex um, area, Stuart Patrick. So welcome back, Stuart, to... Um, to uh, uh, join us in the virtual studio to talk about biodiversity today. It's great to be here. Thanks, uh, Alan. Oh, it's great. So let me uh, let me start this way, uh, Stuart. Um, you did a blog post recently at CFR and WPR uh, on, and you titled it "To Prevent Future uh, Pandemics." 
Start by Protecting Nature. Uh, and you wrote, the path to global health security, in other words, begins with protecting nature. And what did you mean by that when you uh, wrote that? Well, I think, um, Alan, what I was really trying to say is that, um, that the, the main global health threats that we face today, at least when it comes to infectious diseases, new and emerging infectious diseases, are those that are actually emerging from um, wild animals. And they are um, so-called zoonotic diseases. You know, mm -hmm. since, since 1970, there's been around um, you know, 400 or so new and emerging infectious diseases, about 75% of them have been ones that have jumped from animals, uh, wild animals to humans, often through an intermediate species. Now, there's a lot of debate going on right now, as you know, about the origins of COVID-19. Um, obviously, it is, is a, a, bat, a bat virus or a virus that infects bats, and the question is whether or not this jumped in, a, in sort of a zoonotic fashion or was that the, the, the yeah, emerging as a laboratory release. But, but, but regardless of what the truth of that is, there's no question that humans have been infected by um, bat viruses before, um, most notably in, in the case of SARS, but, but many others um, where there's been sort of an animal origin from, you know, HIV AIDS to uh, Marburg um, to swine flu, bird flu, mares, oh, you know, came, came through camels, etc. So this is a, it, it's a trend and it's, it's a trend that's gotten worse over time. And uh, you know, when you talk to folks at the United Nations Environmental um, Program or uh, other um, other folks working in the field, um, including um, virologists, they say that basically what's happening is that humans are increasingly encroaching upon um, natural environments. And the more degraded and broken up a natural environment is uh, where wild species are living, the greater the propensity, not only for, for coming into contact with uh, animals who are, are carriers of these viruses, but also uh, for animals that remain in those sort of fragmented ecosystems to actually be reservoirs of those viruses. So it's a, it's a huge problem and it's exacerbated by the wildlife trade, which um, obviously has been implicated in a lot of new and emerging infectious diseases, not only, not least in China, um, because, um, you know, you're, you're bringing the wild animals into off, often these wet markets uh, where there's just huge um, opportunities for, um, for viruses to go back and forth. Also, the animals are stressed, so their viral load is larger, et cetera. So while the animal trade is a big, is a big portion of it, but, but by and large, this is a function of uh, humans being out of balance with the natural environment and providing opportunities uh, for, uh, you know, creating greater epidemiological integration, if you will, with our wild animal cousins. And so one of the things that, that has, um, has emerged from this is this notion that we really need to have um, uh, sort of a different approach um, to um, to global health um, that tries to um, uh, recognize this fact and, and, and preserves biodiversity uh, and sort of intact natural habitats um, as part of our, in a sense, global health strategy. So, uh, and you mentioned in, in that uh, podcast, is, or sorry, the blog post as well, this so-called uh, one health approach. And I take it that's kind of what you're referencing uh, is this one health approach. But how how is it that you... You know, uh, how does biodiversity uh, protect us against these, the transmission of these uh, diseases uh, from animals to humans? Well, in a couple of ways. Um, one of them is that, is that more biodiverse ecosystems actually, uh, in the same way that they, they help prevent pests at sort of uh, the level of 
you know, uh, locust infestations and things like that. Those, those, those types of um, imbalances are less common in um, biodiverse rich, rich ecosystems because they're sort of checks and balances in nature. The same is true uh, when it comes to um, um, basically the spread of viruses. And so healthier ecosystems um, that have a greater variety of species, they have a greater variety. Well, let me just say in terms of what we think of as biodiversity, it's a measure of how diverse um, the natural world is. And there are three components. One of them is what is, what is the diversity, genetic diversity uh, among different species. And as species um, become less um, genetically diverse, um, they tend to suffer. Then it's their sort of diversity among different species. How, how many different kinds of species are there in a particular environment? And then there's um, ecosystem diversity, which is basically how many different types of biomes do we have and how okay. resilient are they? And what it turns out is that the more resilient species are, the more resilient um, and, and diverse um, you have uh, a number of different species. And, and the more, um, the more um, diverse types of ecosystems you have, it turns out that, there, that there's an actual correlation with that health um, and um, the, the sort of... Um, or at least I guess the inverse correlation, I would say, between the health of biodiversity and uh, the, the prospect and propensity for having these, these major pandemics. Um, so that's, that's one thing. The other thing is that if you preserve biodiversity, you, you, that all often, at least at the ecosystem level, will mean creating buffers uh, between humans and wild species so that they don't come into contact as much in an unhealthy fashion. So, oh, okay. uh, so the idea is if you can prevent habitat fragmentation, if you can provide some sort of insulation uh, of, 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 of species that would, might be carrying these viruses, then you're just going to have fewer opportunities for, for these pathogens to jump from uh, wild species to humans. And then, of course, once they do jump these days with uh, transportation links, it means that, you know, that, that transmission can occur then around the world um, with lightning speed. No, it's complex, needless to say, yeah, and, and, I, yeah. and I and I want to, uh, you know, discuss with it in a few minutes that further in talking about this 30 by 30 uh, proposition that seems to be part of the effort to improve biodiversity. But before we get there, I wanted to raise with you uh, the Convention on um, Biological Diversity, or CBD, as it's frequently uh, referred to. And um, uh, I wanted to understand, first of all, now I know, and we're going to talk about the Kunming uh, gathering, which is the uh, conference of the parties, which is COP15, all these conference of the parties from UN specification, right? But this one is with respect to uh, biodiversity. But what is the, you know, kind of the goal of the, of the big convention uh, on biological diversity? What's the objective yeah. there? Well, sure. The, I mean, the, the CBD is, is basically was, was created um, um, in, in part with a um, conservation mandate. Um, uh, mm. There's with the, the knowledge um, that, um, that we're, the natural world has been suffering um, hugely. And, um, and so part of it is uh, the, a conservation element um, to help countries um, think about how better, best to preserve um, the, the, the nature that they have. Um, but then it's also the second that so conservation is the first pillar. The second is sustainable use of its components because it's, you know, it's also broadly understood that um, people depend on nature for many things. Um, in fact, when, when people uh, look at biodiversity, um, they, they, 
there's, there's an increasing appreciation that there are um, at least three types of what are called ecosystem services we get from nature um, and from a biodiverse world. Um, those, the, there, there first are the, the sort of regulatory functions that biodiversity provides us. And that, that includes everything from making sure that we have, um, you know, uh, clean air and, and water, uh, that, uh, that the biogeochemical cycles, you know, the nitrogen cycle and the phosphorus cycle are working as they should. Um, yeah, the uh, healthy um, nature, healthy ecosystems help um, provide pollination for our plants uh, and they help buffer us from storms, right? When you think about the role of sort of coral reefs and in, in, in mangroves and helping um, prevent really damaging hurricanes. So this is, there's an appreciation, a growing appreciation of these sort of regulatory services. Then there are also these provisioning services that we get from nature, food, fuel, and materials. So we consume nature as well. And we want to be able to sure, make sure that we do it in a, um, in a sustainable fashion. And then there are finally the sort of the subjective benefits that we gain from nature, um, whether these are, you know, spiritual or recreational, you know, I'm, I'm going to be going to Belize to go scuba diving in a couple of weeks. Uh, and then there is obviously um, uh, identity and, and, and often human identity in, in many cultures is very much attached to um, the sort of nature that they have. So the Convention on Biodiversity recognizes that there are a number of different um, different benefits that we get mm -hmm. from nature. So, and we need to conserve it. We need to uh, ensure its sustainable use. And then the third um, uh, thing that we need to do is we need to, to ensure the fair and equitable sharing of the benefits that arise from it, in, including um, genetic resources. As you may know, um, you know, there's been a huge, uh, a huge number of, um, you know, pharmaceuticals, for instance, are derived from um, the, uh, the resources that we get from and, and medicines as well, um, that mm -hmm. we get from plants, um, often in tropical rainforests. And so, you know, as, as in many international treaties, the Convention on Biodiversity tries to uh, balance, you know, the right of access um, and the development of particular resources with the notion that, well, shouldn't those countries that actually host or 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 are, are places where those um, uh, commodities are being harvested or or created, shouldn't they actually benefit from that? So there, are, you know, the the notion here is that biodiversity is part of the common heritage of humankind, as the mm -hmm. phrase goes. And so the question is, well, how do we actually how do we actually share that? And so. That is what the CBD tries to do. Uh, it tries to balance conservation, sustainable use, um, and equitable sharing. Sharing. Benefit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, um, you know, the CBD has been um, not particularly good at conserving uh, and, and promoting uh, wise stewardship of biodiversity around the world. Um, and one thing I just I want to say, that one of the reasons why there's so much attention to biodiversity is that nature is... Um, is really experiencing the greatest loss and most catastrophic sort of declines in biodiversity um, in history. Um, and the figures are absolutely startling. Um, you may have heard the phrase, the sixth extinction, um, uh, which was popularized by Elizabeth Colbert and, and Colbert in her a book of that, um, of that uh, title. And, you know, the, it, it's a fact that the, that the current background uh, rate of extinction is at least uh, a I mean, excuse me, the current rate of extinction is at least a thousand times greater than the background rate of the past few million years. Um, and you see, um, I mean, it's really been devastating, uh, you know, over the, over the past um, 40 or 50 years, the pop populations of wild vertebrates in the world have declined by 60%. Um, fisheries, 93% uh, of them are overfished or fished to capacity. 
you know, 35% of mangroves have disappeared around the world. Wetlands have, di- uh, have declined uh, over the last century by 85%. You know, you can, you can go on and on um, with these indicators and it's really disastrous. And, and, and it, it correlates exactly with an explosion in human population and changing material consumption patterns around the world. You know, it would take almost five Earths for all of humanity to enjoy the same standard of living as Americans today. Um, and uh, so we're in ecological overshoot, as they say. So the question is, what can we do about this? Um, and, you know, the, the previous agreement in, um, uh, you know, because they, they, the, the uh, conference of parties, they do these sort of 10 year strategic plans, the previous agreement, which occurred in, in, um, in uh, Nagoya, Japan in 2010, and came up with these things called the Aichi targets. Um, you know, they just, it, countries almost uniformly failed uh, to reach these biodiversity targets. So that's the big problem that the CBD is facing as it uh, as it approaches its next conference of parties. Okay, so I, I did want to take you there to um, the conference of parties because this is coming up. It's been delayed, obviously, the pandemic and the whole yeah, bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but COP fifteen is going to um, is going to meet now uh, in October in uh, uh, Kunming, uh, China. And I understand, uh, and, you know, in some senses make perfect sense why Kunming, because a lot of the biodiversity in China is actually in Kunming. Um, indeed, so, indeed. No, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a real, um, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a jewel of biodiversity, but under yeah. well. Yeah. And so now uh, it, it, the conference, I take it, is hoping to adopt a new uh, uh, element, a new convention element called post-2020 global biodiversity framework. That seems to be what they're, uh, what they're trying to reach agreement on. Um, and and um, so let, let's go to the, the centerpiece of that, which I take it is uh, apparently uh, to protect 30% of the earth's land and water by 2030. And that's known as the 30 by 30 initiative. So maybe you can kind of describe a little bit more what the, obviously given what you've just told us, which is previous efforts have not succeeded. Uh, what's, what's this object, objective that they're, they're posing with the discussions under uh, COP15? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, the problems with the, the Aichi targets, um, as I mentioned, um, were that they often weren't uh, particularly quantitative. Um, mm-hmm. They weren't linked to um, anything that governments could be held accountable for. Um, and so there was this, a sense that there needs to be a, a new approach. And, and the thing that the conferees have and the, the organizers of, of the conference have, have sort of seized on is this uh, 30 by 30 um, target. Um, uh, which is is interesting. It's it's actually um, uh, was the the brainchild of uh, a number of um, environmental scientists a couple of years ago um, who wrote in a journal basically saying, look, we think we need to get to fifty percent. We need to preserve half of the Earth, um, hopefully uh, by by twenty fifty, and basically permanently protect it from human exploitation. But as an interim goal, we believe that uh, that and, and as a doable goal, we believe we can sort of permanently protect thirty percent of the Earth's surface um, by twenty thirty. 
And um, today, by contrast, about 15% of land, so about half of half of the target, is has in, enjoys some form of protection. And in the oceans, it's only about 7%. And in fact, only 2% is sort of strongly protected. So there's a long way to go, particularly on the oceans level. And mm-hmm. we're going to talk about that later. But, but um, uh, 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 last year, um, Costa Rica and France, um, who have been spearheading this effort, um, created something called the High Ambition Coalition for Nature and People. And they actually held um, a, a big meeting this January uh, called the One Planet Summit that helped give this 30 by 30 campaign that's also being uh, led by the National Geographic Society and, and, and others at a non-governmental level. They basically said, look, let's push this forward. And they, they formed what they call the High Ambition Coalition for nature and people. And, you know, more than 50 countries signed up for that in January. The United States was not one of it, but of course we were in transition from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. Since then, interestingly, the Biden administration has adopted the 30 by 30 uh, goal, which has already been adopted by a number of states, including California, where I am right now. Um, But uh, the Biden administration has adopted it as a, as a domestic, um, target um, and in fact released uh, um, an initiative called uh, America the Beautiful <laughs> recently <laughs> basically explaining how how that it might go about it but has not yet endorsed it at the at the international level so this 30 by 30 target is you know it's one of these sort of it's a bold commitment but the idea and and hopefully will sort of exercise the mind you know or at least you know get energize people i think is the idea and but importantly there's going to be some national flexibility implementation on the other hand, it's also um, the, the, the Kunming Agreement is also it provided it endorses this. And it has been, this target has been included in the, the so-called zero draft that is currently being negotiated. So the prospects are very good that it's going to get endorsed. Um, but for, uh, also nicely, you know, there's a, there's a strategic framework. Um, there's um, there's, there's going to be an effort to, uh, to, to have peer review to be able to hold countries accountable. And that's a very important thing. We've seen that in other frameworks like the G20 and others. If you have a little bit of a peer review, then without it being totally naming and shaming, if you fall short, people are going to know about it. Uh, so mm-hmm. it provides some incentive. That said, um, I have to say that there are some dilemmas and challenges uh, with 30 by 30 um, that, uh, that bear mention. And, 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 you know, can you expand on that a little bit? What, 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 what seems to be, you know, the, the limitations there? Well, I mean, it's a, as a broad, I mean, it, it's a great campaign rallying cry, but the question right. is, well, I mean, there's a number of sort of dilemmas. First of all, you know, what 30% of the earth, I guess would be the most obvious, right? You know, <laughs> you know obviously you're not going to just, you know, throw darts at a globe and decide that we're going to protect there. I'm not, clearly not all parts of the world are equally important, right? So, you know, freshwater habitats, for instance, are, you know, 10% of sort of, you know, um, of, of species live in them, even though they only have about, you know, one or 2% of the, of the world. Um, so you'd want to focus. I see primarily on certain, you know, and you'd want to focus on biodiversity, so-called biodiversity hotspots. They only take up about two, two and a half percent of the earth, but you know, they, you get a lot more bang for the buck. If you, if you uh, work there, um, you want to make sure that you're preserving it's an example, by the way, of a, of such a hotspot. Well, I guess the most obvious one, I guess, would be the Galapagos Islands. Um, but, okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, but there are many, many in different parts, and you know, um, you know, cloud forests in um, in uh, Costa Rica would probably be another one. Um, sure. They are all around the world, and you know, the Nature Conservancy and others have have attempted to um, 
to try. Conservation yeah. International has, have attempted to sort of list these and the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, they, they identified them. So if you can Google, you know, biodiversity hotspots, you'll be able to see, and they, they might not all be, they might, some of them might be surprising. Um, mm-hmm. Some of them might be uh, where, where you don't expect them. But, you know, the other questions is, you know, if you, if you're, you know, you, you can't forget also biodiversity in the other 70% of the earth, right? <laughs> so, you know, you, you want to you wanna make uh, Central Park as biodiverse as possible, even if uh, it's not going to be a part of the designated area. Um, and so a lot of different um, questions. A, a couple of others that I think are important. One of them is, um, is how protected do you have to make these areas, right? Sure. Should sure. there be, so, uh, you know, some light you know, exploitation or fishing or hunting allowed. And then the final issue is that, you know, what, what, what conservationists globally have discovered is that a vast percentage of, um, and you know this being in Canada, a vast percentage of some of these ecosystems are actually um, uh, managed and stewarded on a day-to-day basis by indigenous communities. And of course, mm-hmm. they've been the ones that have usually gotten the short end of the stick um, and often been oppressed but now it turns out we need to appreciate, you know, their local knowledge, their historical knowledge that they've passed down through generations, because they often, as in the case of, for instance, dealing with wildfires in the state of California, it turns out that the indigenous inhabitants um, had a different relationship with fire and one that was, you know, um, that it saw its role in national natural ecosystem preservation, but also um, it both both in its its sort of short term destructive potential, but its short term creative potential as well. Too. Yeah, and I, I certainly in my visits with family to Australia, for instance, particularly in the outback. I mean, one of the first things that struck us when we were traveling all the way across through the to the Kimberleys and out to Broome in Australia, so in the northern kind of coast of Australia, was we, we would see Aboriginal people um, lighting fire. Uh, you'd have these individuals, you know, kind of uh, walking along in the middle of nowhere as we were driving along in a, in a bus, and they would, they would be, you know, lighting uh, fire, which I take it was to deal with the health of the of the brush and to burn off some of the the local fuel that could that could really consume then um, those areas which we've seen of course happening in in uh, on the west coast in, in California and Oregon and so forth where the fires are huge. Yeah, absolutely. I spent uh, when I was a an undergraduate. I spent a couple summers in um, East Africa and Tanzania um, on an archaeological dig, and um, in the Maasai, we do the same thing. Actually, interestingly, um, and, mm-hmm. and partly when you're anticipating the rains. Um, so it was, and but it was a relatively light touch management. I mean, there was fire, but then you know they were anticipated the rains, and then suddenly they have done that, and then you know when the rains came, then suddenly the whole place was incredibly green and fertile. So you know, in a in a sort of a way of managing things that's not one of these catastrophic um, sort of mm-hmm. conflagrations that we've seen in California and elsewhere. So, so this part, this use and conservation sustainability, I mean, does it, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, kind of news headlines in the last while, most recently, uh, the Biden decision to suspend um, the, the oil and gas leases uh, in the Arctic. I take it, this is what it relates to. I, I take it some argue that they should be permitted, um, uh, notwithstanding that there are Arctic refuge, um, you know, that, that this can continue. And others are saying, no, no, you can't do that. It, it's, it's destructive and, and it likely to, dist- you know, to, to harm um, those uh, 
ecological area. So I take it that that's the kind of debate you end up getting into, notwithstanding the 30 by 30. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, there are different there are different um, things at stake here. I mean, obviously, you know, uh, by, uh, Joe Biden wants a foreign policy as well as a domestic policy for the middle class. Right. But, um, you know, you want to be able to provide jobs, etc. But when you think about, you know, the causes of biodiversity loss around the world, um, and including in the United States, you know, one of them is intense. Many of them are, these are actually associated here. There's the, the five are intensive land use. And obviously, if you're bringing in huge installations to um, extract fossil fuels, you're going to be uh, changing changing um, the ecosystem. Another is climate change. And obviously, if you are extracting fossil fuels that will then be burned, <laughs> then then you have uh, you're, you're going to be increasing the biodiversity problem. Um, you know, over exploitation is another one. Um, invasive species and then pollution. Um, th- these are all uh, factors that cause a biodiversity loss. And so, you know, um, in addition to um, the the climate um, issue that's invoked when you when you're actually extracting fossil fuels, there are all these you're going you are going to be disturbing, uh, you know, pristine um, uh, places that are, I mean, you know, an area that's referred to as America's Serengeti. And so mm-hmm. you can't get that back. But I think the, the point I also want to make is that this is, you know, often, um, the biodiversity challenges is, um, presented as a contrast between people versus trees. And I think that there've been some really interesting reports recently suggesting that that is not the way to look at nature and, and nature loss. Um, mm-hmm. The reality is that the World Economic Forum estimated in um, January of 2020 that uh, half of global GDP, half of global GDP is either moderately or highly dependent on benefits from nature. Um, and so when the when the, the high the high priests of global capitalism um, in Davos say <laughs> that that we should not only that we should treasure nature and we should also value it and we should, you know, treat our natural capital assets with the same and, and nurture them with the same sort of devotion that we, we, we do to our human capital and our produced capital. I think mm-hmm. you're beginning to see a sea change. Another thing that came out recently um, in this February was uh, Sir Partha Dasgupta, um, a, a very accomplished economist, um, I believe at Cambridge University, um, Bangladeshi, um, Britain, uh, British um, economist, released a massive report called the Economics of Biodiversity, which has been called the Stern Report for Biodiversity. You remember what <laughs> Stern did um, the report on climate change. Right. And I think he, it, it actually accomplishes much of the same thing. He basically was saying, we need to engage in natural capital accounting. We need to in, we need to think about our natural capital um, as part of our inclusive wealth um, it, uh, alongside our, you know, produced capital and our human capital or financial capital, et cetera. And, um, and once you start looking at things, you begin to see that, for instance, the terrible things that governments do, um, governments spend 50, five, excuse me, $500 billion on nature destroying subsidies. So fossil fuels, you know, uh, mm-hmm. agricultural subsidies, water subsidies, all sorts of things, right? And that is vastly in excess of what um, we spend on conservation expenditures. And and so just take the 30 by 30 example, right? The estimated cost of that is $140 billion a year. Now that sounds like a lot of money. It's, um, you know, it's basically 0.16% of global GDP, but that's, mm-hmm. only, that's only a third of what government spent on nature destroying subsidies. And it's probably only a couple uh, of times as much as the world spends on ice cream each year. 
So, <laughs> you know, which I think is which I think is on the on the on the order of about eighty billion dollars a year, maybe a little bit less than that, but or seventy. <laughs> but so you you know you have to keep everything in perspective here. But once you start seeing nature not as just something nice to have, but as the as the foundation not only for all of life on the planet, but also a foundation for sustainable economic growth, then you be a, begin as well as human health. If you're thinking about, you know, pandemics, then you you sort of think, well, wow, we should be better stewards of this environment we have. Mm -hmm. So uh, what's your sense of Kunming? I mean, is there progress going to be made or are we, you know, still spinning our wheels or where where are the nations in in concluding uh, this this new uh, this new convention? You know, I think that, um, you know, the, the <clears throat> answers are very good that the 30 by 30 um, initiative will be announced. I think a lot of it has to, uh, a lot of it is really um, like, it, you know, my guess is it'll be like the Paris Agreement, right? Where uh -huh. the agreement is very strong and the proof really is in the pudding being made later on. So, you know, what's this, what's the situation in terms of, you know, our country's going to follow through on this. Is there going to be some effort to try to help um, nations that might want to do the right thing, perhaps like particularly biodiverse um, rich countries, uh, but that are economically poor. This is one thing you actually, it's not an entire correlation, but you do have this division globally. You tend to have wealthy countries that are not always as biodiverse. They, they're often biodiversity poor. And then you have um, biodiverse rich countries that are sort of economically poor. And mm -hmm. so the question is, wh what are the sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, what level of assistance, what kind of uh, technology transfer, what kind of financial um uh, arrangements are going to be created. There's also, you know, how strong is any peer review mechanism going to be? Because you're not, it's still going to rely basically on voluntary nationally determined contributions, much like um, the Paris Agreement. And so right. uh, it, uh, you know, the proof will be, or the, um, the test will be in the implementation here. Uh, one thing that's good is that when it comes to um, the global economy, I think that there's growing recognition in the same way that, you know, you know, the fiduciary responsibility now of companies and, uh, you know, asset managers to sort of talk about, you know, climate risk is growing. I think you're going to start to see the same thing with respect to, um, with respect to nature and nature loss. Uh, and uh, it, it'll be more complicated, I think, than, than just sort of emissions issues, right, but, right. but it will, uh, it, it's increasingly, you know, the world bank, International Monetary Fund, bilateral aid agencies uh, also are um, are trying to include sort of nature friendly uh, provisions within development, um, major development projects that they would be funding too as well on the on the on the public finance side of things. So Kunming, in, in that sense, like Paris, not only you know obviously is is about regulation, but it's also about financial transfer, and we can see that. The difficulty in the Paris Agreement, you know, the, the objective was, a, I think, $100 billion a year transfer from the advanced to the developing countries with, to help in climate change and the, and the reduction in carbon emission. But, of course, we're nowhere near the $100 billion a year annually in transfer. So I take it on the biodiversity side, there's a similar need for financial uh, assistance if we're really going to be able to preserve and sustain uh, the biodiversity. Yes, and in the same in the same way that you know a lot of this will come uh, with sort of changing um, private sector behavior too, and perhaps mm -hmm. 
and and also um, you know um, making the trade system more uh, reconciling the global trade regime you know and WTO trade rules and issues like you know carbon border adjustments um, so that you know uh, they, there there can be an effort to try to um, reward countries that are actually taking um, you know, are trying to decarbonize um, and not give an unfair advantage to those that um, that are sticking uh, with the old fossil fuel model. And there will be something similar that will have to be done, uh, and it'll be trickier um, because biodiversity is a little bit tougher to track. Biodiversity conservation than mm-hmm. uh, carbon emissions, uh, much harder to track. Um, and so, but I, my my expectation is that over time uh, there will be you know an, a long or arduous slog to try to uh, reconcile the global trading system with um, with environmental stewardship, um, and a lot of debates over how to do that and whether or not. That the traffic at the WTO will bear that kind of um, cross-disciplinary right. uh, <laughs> effort. Well, one last area. Uh, it may come as a surprise to some of the folks listening uh, today, but um, in fact, um, uh, international law does not meaningfully address biodiversity monitoring and conservation in the high seas. That is the area beyond... Um, national jurisdiction, right, which is beyond these so-called um, uh, exclusive economic zones. So you're in what is the high season. In fact, 64% of the area, 95% by volume, is not covered by any uh, international treaty at all. So um, the, these regions are often, you know, the term is high seas. But the point is, in 2017, the UN General Assembly voted to convene a multi-year process to develop a treaty on the high seas. Uh, and um, I guess the, the question is like, like Kunming and uh, COP15 and so forth, have we made progress? Is there a prospect of uh, a high seas treaty to try to take into account all the, these vast areas, which includes areas for fishing and all sorts of other kinds of uh, natural elements, right? Yeah, no, it's it, uh, it's really an open question right now. Um, I, I mean, uh, you know, the, it, this is the most important treaty you've never heard of. Um, <laughs> it's supposed to have been entering its fourth and final, allegedly final phase. Um, but, you know, I guess I would describe it as becalmed or in the doldrums, uh, if I can use the nautical analogy here, or not nautical term. Um, you know, it, it would... It would, if ratified, uh, I mean, excuse me, if, if um, yeah, ratified by a, a sufficient number of, of parties, um, you know, would protect 43% of the Earth's surface um, and the water column below outside national jurisdiction. Um, and, you know, it's, the idea here is to try to um, f- um, fill a glaring gap in the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. Um, right. Um, and... And as you point out, yeah, you know, 43% of the Earth's surface, um, more than 60% of the of, of ocean, and then the entire water column below. And this is, this is a quintessential global commons. Um, and mm-hmm. this would be an implementing agreement under UNCLOS, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. Um, uh, it's... It's important, um, you know, it used to be that it used to be thought that the high seas were sort of a lifeless zone, but uh, far from it, we've discovered, right? Because you have these undersea seamounts that are incredibly uh, biodiverse. There's, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's pelagic species, the, you know, uh, so-called straddling fish stocks that go back and forth between the high seas and, um, and exclusive economic zones. Um, mm-hmm. There's, um, there are huge, you know, these seamounts, um, undersea vents uh, where new forms of life have been discovered. And, and, and then, of course, you've got the fact that, you know, phytoplankton, um, 
is responsible for fix, fixing, that is, um, you know, absorbing uh, basically 50% of the anthropogenic um, uh, um, oxygen, excuse me, uh, CO2 that um, basically human generated CO2. So it's an enormous carbon sink as well, the oceans. Uh-huh. And you know, if it didn't exist, um, the earth would both be a lot more carbonized and, and um, uh, I mean, the atmosphere would be, and, um, and it would be a lot warmer too as well, because it's a heat sink as well. So it's enormously important. Unfortunately, it's the, the high seas are being pillaged um, by, as technology improves. Um, you know, and the tech, um, the, the access provided by high technology from fishing fleets to mining, et cetera, is um, much going much faster than outpacing uh, any government's uh, mm. governance effort. So 40% of the oceans are now seriously degraded and uh, only 3% would, could be kind of classified as pristine according to national geographic and other authorities. So you have, you know, you do, it's not like it's entirely governed. It's not entirely lawless. I um, mean, you have I mean, the unclosed coverage, some things, sort of in basic principles in terms of conservation, you do have these regional fisheries management organizations, um, but, but you don't have uh, a real governance structure for the high seas. And so um, the high seas biodiversity convention would seek to deal with basically four main issues. Um, You know, one of them is environmental impact assessments, right? You know, what do you have to do before you actually sort of exploit the sea in any uh, meaningful manner? Um, But there's, there are big different, big uh, questions there. You know, who do you have to submit your environmental impact assessment to an international panel, for instance? Um, Mm -hmm. Another area is, is uh, what are so-called area-based management tools. And you think, think of marine protected areas, right? We've heard about like some of these islands island states declaring huge uh, marine protected areas in their exclusive economic zones. The question is, how do you do that in the high seas and under what authority and mechanisms, right? That's a huge issue. And there's a lot to be ironed out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one is capacity building, right? A lot of countries are thinking to themselves, wow, how come, you know, poorer countries think, wow, everybody's sort of hoovering up these resources and we need to have technology <laughs> to be able to, to participate too. And so this is sort of a capacity building thing. And then the final one um, really um, in, in terms of the thematic issues that are, are really uh, tough to deal with, um, and this is particularly hard, is the issue of marine genetic resources, right? Like one company, BASF, has a huge percentage, you know, practically 50%, I believe, of, of um, basically um, – patents for uh, marine genetic, um, you know, discoveries. And the question here again is, is like with the Convention of Biological Diversity, hey, aren't these, you know, common heritage of humankind and shouldn't we be able to share in the benefits of those discoveries? Mm -hmm. The question is, do you share in the benefits and access to genetic resources from the stuff that's pulled out of the water? Or are you also then allowed to share the benefits of the genetic, you know, um, digital sequencing that's done on the organism? So, there are huge issues going on here. Um, you know, there's other issues about how this relates to UNCLOS and the, and the, and the mm-hmm. UN and the seabed authority. So there's a lot that's going on here. Um, I think that, um, you know, um, with John Kerry, who, as we know, is a huge fan of the oceans, um, um, uh, the, the United States um, should be look at this relatively sympathetically. Um, the Obama administration was a late entry into sort of agreeing right. That we should we should uh, get Do involved something, in. get a treaty. Yeah, part and again, partly it, partly it's because 
well, I guess I'll, let's just back up a second and, re- and acknowledge that getting a treaty through the U.S. Senate is um, even yeah. an environmental treaty is um, is not particularly easy. And, you know, the U.S. would be in a much stronger position negotiating if we were actually members, formal members of the U.N. Convention on the Law of the Sea. The same, I should say, is true about the Convention of Biological Diversity we spent a bunch of time talking about. You know, the U.S. is going to be there in Kunming as an observer, but it's not a party to the treaty. Um, and so, you know, how much leverage is the United States going to have in, in, in both of these treaties? And in, in fact, if, if I understand correctly, only the United States and the Vatican are not uh, uh, actually members of the, of the biodiversity agreement. Yes, yeah, yeah, that is correct. It, it, is, uh, it is quite remarkable um, that, um, that, that the United States has not become a party for, for, the, for the CBD um, and unclose, actually, because every basically until Trump, sort of every single American president um, since Ronald Reagan, after the treaty was, quote unquote, fixed for for U.S. Um, for U.S. prerogatives, um, mm-hmm. you know, e- every president, secretary of defense and secretary of state, you know, until the Trump administration had um, said strongly that we would be in a better it would advance U.S. national interest if we were members of the U.N. Convention on Law of the Sea. You know, the Convention on Biological Diversity was almost passed. It was reported out of committee something like 16 to 3 during the early Clinton administration uh, in favor uh, out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And it was just it, be, it became a victim of, um, of domestic partisan politics. Um, <laughs> And partly, again, for sovereign, for sort of misguided, sort of a misconception of, of it, that it would violate American sovereignty. Um, right. And also, right. also questions of, you know, worries about that it was going to mandate technology transfers or tell the United States how it manages natural resources. The reality is that, as in most of these multilateral treaties, the United States domestically has much stronger standards <laughs> when it comes to biodiversity conservation and, and management. I mean, we, we're, we are the country where most many of these sort of um, conservation principles began. Um, and so we have very high standards already. Um, uh, and so the idea that somehow some U- foreign UN body is actually gonna tell the United States um, how, to, how to do its business is, is, is simply ridiculous. Um, but, it, but it's a very um, strong talking point <laughs> on the conservative nationalist side of things. Mm. Well, Stuart, I really wanna thank you for taking the time to discuss uh, all these biodiversity issues. It's an enormously important area and not one that's well publicized, it seems to me, uh, and needs needs a lot more promotion so that people understand how critical uh, uh, biodiversity protection really is and, and is needed as well. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think, you know, as, as it, you know, we've entered the Anthropocene, as uh, people say, right, where yeah. Uh, yeah. humans become uh, at least, um, there's, a, there's talk about de- declaring a new um, geological era and to reflect the fact that, you know, that, um, that the humans have become, you know, the, one of the major forces in the Earth system, uh, and perhaps the dominant force of the Earth system and, and, and its processes. And, um, you know, how to move um, towards this, you um, this new era of environmental stewardship and also how to overcome the disjunction between a unified earth system. Um, it doesn't obey sovereign boundaries with a, a system of world politics that's still um, divided up into, mm-hmm. you know, 193 territorially distinct sovereign jurisdictions is right. going to be a tricky, <laughs> tricky one for, for the rest <laughs> of the century, for sure. Well, thank you, Stuart. It's been great uh, talking about this. Thank you so much, Alan.